This week out of the Real Splitter, we're going to talk about teaching the Civil War. podcast my name is jeremy with me this evening are rail splitter nick what's up internet galaxy and rail splitter mary hey rail splitters so it is the middle of june we are recording i believe our 53rd episode and we are happy to be with you wherever you're listening to the show uh first uh thing we want to do at the top of the show we generally go over news items um, it was made very clear to us that the executives at FIFA, who control the world soccer, must be rail splitter fans because they've seen how well the United States and Canada can work together to create something. Using the Rail Splitter podcast as an example, I believe then they have decided to give the World Cup to a joint effort between Canada, the United States, and of course, for good measure, Mexico. I'm sure that it had something to do with our international podcast hosting abilities maybe not but anyway there is another united states canada joint venture coming your way joining the rail splitter the 2026 world cup it's been big news here in the united states i'm sure canadians are pretty happy as well um and it also might mean canada and the united states will play in a world cup which will be nice to see also um (laughs) I, it kind of brought back some memories of mine, of the Americans uh, playing in the World Cup when Canada hosted it, uh, which would have been, was that just three years ago? Or was that longer ago? The Women's World Cup in Canada. I don't. That was the most recent one, I believe. It was, yep. So that was very, very cool. I'm a big World Cup fan, so we won't get too carried away. Obviously, this is an American history podcast about Abraham Lincoln, uh, but the World Cup started today, and... Uh, FIFA corruption aside, um, all of the problems with the next World Cup aside, I do like the tournament, um, and it will be a fun few weeks of soccer. Anybody want to throw out their predictions? Nick boldly predicted in 2006 that Italy would win. So he Belgium. Is... I'm going with Belgium. Belgium <laughs> is a great pick. It's a kind of a it's certainly a dark horse. Uh, definitely, um, definitely got some power. I'm rooting for England just because my dad is British um, and for Iceland because they're such nice people. Iceland. Yeah. Fascinating, fascinating soccer country. They had a really nice run in the Euros last time around in 2016. Uh, They have fewer people in their country than Corpus Christi, Texas. Uh And they qualified for the World Cup. And might be a dark horse to kind of get maybe to the round of 16 of the quarterfinals. I heard today on the radio, and I'm not sure if this is true or not, about 10% of their population is going to go to the World Cup. Yeah, and that's like that's Uruguay. That's Uruguay is it? Uruguay, I heard on CBC radio this morning, which is Canadian Broadcasting Corporation yeah. for the Americans. Uh, Uruguay is one of the underdogs. Their population is like 3 million people or something like that. They are one of the underdogs as well for the World Cup. Mm-hmm. Yep, and they, they have the benefit of being in Russia's group, which through a corrupt 
system, I'm sure, mm-hmm. became the easiest group of all. So Uruguay is yeah. probably going to win their group. Um, so Iceland's a great pick because uh, they will have in person 10% of their country there, mm-hmm. which is fascinating to me. That's about as big as three, uh, if three times the size of the city I'm in, um, which just kind of really just twists that knife into why we are not better with 300 million people. How are we not better at this sport? Um, my pick is going to be France. Um, I like the Belgian pick, but I don't, I'm not a huge fan of their head coach. I'm a Man United fan, so I've seen a lot of Lukaku and, um, uh, why am I drawing a blank? Um, the big tall guy with the crazy hair. Um, Mar- uh, Fellaini. Um, I like those guys. Um, I don't like Van Bruyne at all, but, um, they could be good, but I'm going to go with France because I think that they can surprise some people. They're very much a strong team, a lot of depth, and I think they could do well. Um, obviously Dude, they just tied America. There are nobodies. They did just tie the United <laughs> States. That is true. Um, I like Paul Popka a lot as well, along with a couple other players. So, uh, let's get to the task at hand. The other great collaboration between Canada and the United States, which is the Rail Splitter Podcast. And today we're going to talk about how to teach the Civil War. Um, this is a big topic that many books have been written on. Uh, But I just kind of wanted to get into more of a general discussion about in the 21st century, how do we teach the Civil War, both kind of literally, like what teaching techniques do we go about, um, when do we teach it, at what grade level, how do we teach it, Um, because um, Nick and I are both educators by profession, and just, you know, I've been in education for 15 years, and just over those 15 years, schools of thought on how to teach the Civil War have changed dramatically. When I first started teaching, they were really encouraging younger and newer American history teachers to try to avoid teaching military tactics because everybody wants to talk about maneuvers on Little Round Top and everybody wants to talk about, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Stonewall Jackson at, you know, first Bull Run or first mm-hmm. Manassas and, you know, to try to avoid that because kids don't need that, which is true. I agree with that. Um, so it was more talking about like more bigger troop movement things and the anaconda plan and getting into more bigger strategic things to understand the warfare um and then of course there's always been the idea you know talking about sectionalism and and slavery and and those things um now we're the way we teach history and another big debate for throughout those 15 years was when do we teach it at what grade level um so and now i think um we're really looking at history and Nick and I have been involved in many conversations about teaching history thematically. So instead of teaching it chronologically, meaning, you know, one event after the other, one person after the other, to teach it more thematically. So looking at um, civil rights throughout American history, looking at immigration throughout American history, looking at uh, foreign policy, whatever you name it, um, to do that because, you know, we uh, American history educators for a very long time have had the luxury of having a couple hundred years to teach, whereas the whole of Europe has millennia of recorded history to teach. Not that we, obviously there's history before those 200 years, but um, once we've kind of realized that it's, you know, we keep adding on content of chronological history without taking any way, how do we fit that in? And a lot of schools of thought are going toward more of a thematic approach. I don't want to get too much into that because what really drew me to this conversation um, is as an educator, one, but as a parent, two. 
Um, my wife and I were mapping out our travel plans because we have a beach house with my in-laws rented for a week in coastal North Carolina. And on the way there, we're going to stop at some Civil War sites. So my son is very interested in seeing a battlefield. And I'm like, how do I teach? What do I teach? And how do I teach a seven-year-old about the Civil War? What does he need to know? How do I teach it to him? He's a very precocious kid. He's very bright. He'll read, you know, what I give him and all that kind of stuff. But I'm like, man, you know, my knowledge of the Civil War is a little more advanced just as a hobby. So I don't know how to get into it. So I guess my question that I kind of want to talk about with with the two of you and, you know, how how could we, how should we, how do we teach the Civil War? And what are some different thoughts on that? And I know Nick is kind of as a practitioner and Mary as a learner. Um, you both have very good perspective on this topic. You go ahead, Mary. I'll give you okay. the first stab. All right. So the first thing that I want to mention is Fox News has had this series on recently called uh, it's like Civil Wars, like Legends and Lies. And it's, it's Bill O'Reilly. <laughs> <laughs> And I have had some relatives of mine watching it and I've been over at their place and they're watching it and honestly having to bite my tongue. Why is that? <laughs> Why do you think? <laughs> Could you give some specific examples? Uh, the Sherman episode <laughs> would be a specific example where they they have this one part where Sherman comes into a woman's house. She's clearly, her husband is off fighting. And he says, I'm going to murder you unless you show me where your crops are and your meat is and all this other stuff. And I said to my relatives, I'm like, that's not how it happened. Like he didn't go in and do that. So there's that kind of stuff like on these popular news stations like being shown. And yeah, that's <laughs> Yeah, that's Yeah, it, yeah it's uh that's it. I don't even know what to say. Uh not shocking but disappointing, I guess. Definitely I, from what is of course I go looking and I find I do I did find a documentary about Sherman's March to the Sea made a few years ago on History Channel that was very well done that I've been recommending to people to go watch um yeah No I mean to me we're doing a curriculum redesign as Jeremy talked about um and I think one of the most important things that we need to talk about and I know we're going to definitely focus in on on some point is the lost cause idea yeah that the civil war has really become a political tool or propaganda tool for um different people and i think it's important as educators that we give the actual factual information mm -hmm. um that we can and i think the main cause of why it was fought is something that has been manipulated and used for political reasons and that's important to get that across you know, if you just look at, like, why did the war start? I mean, there are documents. South Carolina, you know, 
uh, specifically state slavery. We have, um, who was the vice president? Alexander Stevens? Alexander Stevens, yeah, the cornerstone yeah. speech. Yeah, I mean, that speech right there, that is a primary source that shows, and there's numerous others yep. that support the fact that it was slavery was the issue. That was the issue that really created this, you know, the sexualism between the North and the South. It is the driving wedge mm-hmm. that caused that. And it's important that people understand that. I also, with like, you know, some of the symbols, I think it's important that we also touch on the history of the Confederate flag and how that's been used. You know, Civil War monuments, the kids will know that. They'll have background knowledge about that um, and, and talk about when a lot of those monuments were created, specifically the ones that deal with Robert E. Lee and some of the leaders of the Confederacy. Um, you know, those aren't, a lot of those were not created to remember a group of people who lost their life. Those were created as propaganda tools to push this narrative of the lost cause. Yeah, I agree. So from a high school, I mean, that's a lot easier to get across to high school than a seven-year-old boy. I, I, I don't think lost cause is uh, where you should start with your son. Um, but it, hey, maybe you should. It's a long car ride out there. No, I'm just... Uh, <laughs> well, it's funny because that kind of, the the statues debate has uh, come up at, of all places, where I work at the break table. Um, and I've had to say, I'm like, well, you know, this, this, and this, like, they're like, well, why are they debating the statues? And I've had to explain, well, the reason for the cause of the civil war is why, mm-hmm. you know, the reason those statues were erected is daughters, of the Confederacy or because mm-hmm. of the lost cause. And they don't tell the true story of what is happening. Yeah, there's a great, I know we've talked about Uncivil, the podcast, but it talks about a guy who was actually, I I can't remember the organization he was part of, but he basically was like preaching the idea of this lost cause, Uh and he since got out of that, and it's a great episode, and I would encourage anybody to go see it. I'll try to look up the name here before the end of the show, um, to listen to him and how they preach this narrative, and, you know, and they try to change um, you know, there's different terms, you know, it, it makes me think of like, you know, when Nixon started to use, what was it? Law and order. Yeah. Um, instead of using, you know, racial slurs, they became more creative and were using like these replacement terms to help, you know, target that group of individuals they were trying to target, um, or win support of. So, um, yeah, that, that's kind of the lost cause, man. I feel like at the high school level, that's important for us to talk about and get that across to juniors. Yeah, I, I agree, and I think that that's where, where the challenge comes in, I think, is, that, is, to, is to get to the point of understanding the lead-up to and the um, results of, you know, to get to a point where you can really kind of talk about that without, without just saying – because really the best teaching occurs when the students figure that out for themselves, right? Like you present, yeah. them, you present them with this with enough information – for them to reach that conclusion that's where the best learning and most lasting learning happens extremely difficult to do especially with with young people so how do you get them to do that and then what if they don't <laughs> you know so like what if they're the conclusions that are that they're reaching is like states rights or whatever lost cause you know supporting the lost cause um when like i don't think that this is this is not one of those historic debates where there's um, you know, as long as you can support your argument with evidence, you're right. Like, I think people say that a lot and that is not, I do not believe that because if 
you know, you, only if you're supporting your argument with evidence, considering all of it, not supporting it with the evidence that supports your claim and ignoring that, which does not, uh, which I think a lot of kids have a hard time realizing. They just want to prove their point and not realize like, oh, perhaps I need to reconsider that, that position. Um, and then I think the next, you know, like, so how do we, how do you get the enough factual information in, in kids' heads or any learner's head to get to the point to make that um, determination, um, I think is, is extremely difficult, but so, so necessary. And right now, the way our school is set up, we don't really do it because um, for a long time, we just started teaching at Reconstruction because at lower grade levels, they taught up from the Revolution and before up to and including the Civil War. So, you know, we're just kind of starting to get into it a little bit now more than we have in the past. I say we, I, I, I don't, I'm not involved in it anymore. I used to be, um, but yeah, it's, it's challenging. Um, but I think that, you know, it might be more of a capstone kind of question. Like once you have really looked at the United States, it's such a major turning point. Like once you have looked at all of the United States history, then, then to revisit, then to visit that, 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 the um, question might be better there. Well, I think the, the role is that I'll have to play is picking the what I pick as supplemental materials for them to analyze and interpret becomes huge in that, making sure that there is a variety as from a variety as from north, south, you know what I mean? Different collection of individuals, um, stuff that they can find. I mean, you know, I got to think about my class levels too. I mean, that's where really, you know, I'm earning my paycheck there is picking out the right supplemental materials, making sure that the main points that they're getting the accurate main points from those materials. And then, you know, if they're going a different way, that's where you got to think on your feet and figure out, all right, how do I show that this logically, they are not taking this argument, you know, that, that there's fallacies within that. And that that's tough. That's not giving you a precise answer, but I mean that that's how you have to kind of get there. Is be smart, choose documents. Mm -hmm. um, if you're using documents or whatever primary source you're using, um, you know the more primary sources you have, the more you can say, hey, this is what they are saying. This is them. This is straight from you know the horse's mouth here. Th this is what we have, um, and, and then you build on that. And it's always the building block too. I mean, you could start. Um, it, it kind of depends on time frame too, how long I have to cover that. I mean, if you have a civil war class, I mean, you start with, I don't know, you probably start with the beginning, right? Three fifths compromise and build off that, um, all the way to doing stuff. Well, yeah. The it, way, oh, sorry. I was going to say the way I have, like, I mean, I'm a Canadian having to, I learn about it. I read about it all the time, but I still have people that they know my interest in it. And I had one of my best friends ask me at a dinner last year for a staff party. So tell me about the civil war. Why did it happen? How did it start? And I looked at him and I said, do you have two beers and like two hours? Yeah. And that's what you need. Because yeah. I guess I'm thinking I can't, I can't just say to him like Alexander Stevens cornerstone speech. I can't tell him about all the compromises and everything leading up to it. I have to come up with a way to explain it to him 
in a couple hours that he is going to understand. And honestly, I had to explain to it to him in 20 minutes. And he still was like, what? Yeah. And he still didn't understand it. Like it's, and I think it's, and, and this may be revealing my, my relative ignorance of world history, but there's nothing like it that I, that I can think of. You look at the rise of fascism and that was like a generation or even half a generation yeah. really coming out of the fallout of world war one. Um, not to say that there wasn't anti-Semitism and the, the seeds weren't planted. I'm not saying that at all, but um, the, 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 the degree to which slavery was woven into our existence as a country mm-hmm. since its inception and how that led to the civil war is um, essential to understanding the war but also pretty difficult to understand, um, or at least it was for me. Like I was when I was a kid, I was super into learning everything I could about the Civil War, and I knew that there was a slavery component to it, but it never, it never was really about that. You know, I mean, I don't know. I just it was, I never really understood what that was. I mean, and we have the Gettysburg Address that that so eloquently encapsulates what that war is. And I can remember watching Ken Burns' documentary when I was, I don't know, 10 or 11, and, and really getting a pretty good idea of what I was interested in. But they do it, I mean, looking at it now, they do a really nice job in that documentary of looking at the Gettysburg Address, of tying that in. I mean, they romanticized the South and the Confederacy quite a lot, but, you know, judging it of its time in the 1990s, I think that um, was okay, maybe. Not okay, but, you know passable perhaps um but like thinking about just teaching my kids about it and younger mm-hmm. kids like while i'm mapping out this um this trip because ultimately we're just going to a to a to the beach you know that's that's what the vacation is it's not a civil yeah. war vacation but considering like we could have gone to monticello um I, you know, I've been there. I went there as a kid. It was a memorable, formative experience for me. Um, I don't, I'm not interested in taking my kids to a slave labor camp, which is what that was. And, and, and there's plantations throughout the South still that are like now wedding venues for some reason. But those were where people were beaten until they worked harder yep. and raped and, you know, all, all kinds of unspeakable, um, things that one human being could do to another were done there for wealth. Um, You know, how do I, I don't want to take them there and talk about how brilliant Thomas Jefferson was um, and not teach them the rest of the story. (laughs) Right. But at the same time, if I don't do that, then I'm, then I'm not teaching them any of the story. Right. So, um, and they're five and seven. So this is not like an urgent thing, like where my kids need to know about slavery and how it shaped us as a country and how we're still recovering from it. That's not what I'm saying, but, um, they do, I believe everyone needs to have a working knowledge and a forming knowledge throughout their lives of their own country's history. And where I, the crossroads I'm at now, um, is like, to what degree do I teach them about and how do I teach them about it? Because we so oftentimes have to unlearn what we've learned. I've had so many times in my adult life to really have to be introspective and say, like, the education system that I was brought up in and the system I was brought up in led me to believe this about the American dream. <laughs> and, that you know, it took me a long time to realize that that was all bullshit. 
you know um so like so at that time i was thinking man i wish i didn't learn it that way and now i'm thinking well what way is there to learn it (laughs) you know like Mm -hmm. i don't know i don't know any other way to do it because i don't want to teach my kids about beatings and rapes and murders and you know i don't they don't they're too young for that i don't want to teach them about that but i also don't want them to look look at reality through rose-colored glasses so um as as an educator that's just something that i've kind of been thinking about you know like how do we talk about these things especially with younger learners i i think it's a tough thing to do um as a canadian approaching it you know my first introduction to the civil war was when I was 10 years old and I went to Gettysburg and I saw the battlefield and my dad was like, think about what they fought for. Mm -hmm. And I knew at that point what they were fighting for. And I went back there again when I was uh, 17. And, you know, the battlefield was my introduction to it to know that what they fought for, which was for freedom And when my dad was telling me that when I was, you know, nine or 10, when I was at the battlefield, like freedom to me was just freedom for everybody. Um, You know, he told me afterward about slavery and all that. But when I was 16, 17, when I was there, I knew what it was about. But that's still like, it's a tough thing. Mm hmm to approach with kids that are very young right and and especially when we're you know you're talking about and 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 sometimes it's difficult for for younger learners i think to grasp but if if one side is fighting for freedom what does that make the other side fighting for exactly yeah um because what i you know i was thinking about man you know if we just stood there on the battlefield at gettysburg or antietam and said like this is what these people did they had to face down like these very, very dangerous situations and they did it bravely and they did it with honor. Well, you could say the same for every single person on Pickett's charge and then some, right? That was the most brave thing that arguably anyone did in the war, right? Like everybody knew what was going to happen and they, and they still did. I mean, that is, that is bravery. There's no way around it. Those folks were as brave as any soldier, uh, possibly in the history of warfare. Yep. Right. Exactly. So, and I don't, in the, so like how, <laughs> that's a very deep concept to wrap your head around. Right. Like both sides were brave. Both sides thought yep. they were on the side, on the right side, both believed in what they were fighting for. Um, like how do you teach war <laughs> to a seven year old or, or a 10 year old or a 15 year old, you know? So I guess it, that's well, what's interesting. It, it, it's, it's so difficult. Like, because, like I was that age when I was starting to learn about it and I'm having to learn about it on my own. It, it's so tough to teach to somebody that age when they're so like, well, right and wrong is black and white, right? That's the thing. Mm-hmm. But I think yeah. it just starts with questions, building blocks. Yeah, questions. exactly. All right, Civil War. So who are the two sides? You know, identify that. I mean... Heck, you gotta do that sometimes with high school kids. <laughs> and then you go, all right, why did they fight? And then you know, you, you start to use those questions for them to seek those answers um, and, and figure that stuff out. Um, and, and you could just build on that. I mean, obviously, with a seven-year-old, you're probably gonna get, all right, who fought in the Civil War? What were the two sides? Um, you know, 
why do they fight? Maybe at a very bare level, you know what I mean? Um, and, you know, you, you could talk slavery in very general terms uh, without the, de- then you just got to build that up over time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think with young learners, when you got a seven-year-old and you know you got, what, 11 years of time to build that knowledge on there. Right. So, yeah. and then maybe you focus in, you know, at a seven-year-old, maybe you do focus on some of the interesting tales um, of the Civil War to keep their interest there so they want to continue to build on the building blocks. You know, there's always that fine line, mm-hmm. too. Um, you know, some of those more interesting stories, maybe that's, as a teacher, I'm thinking, you know, maybe that's like a warm-up or something you sprinkle in a lecture to kind of break it up if it's a note-heavy day um, to keep their interest, um, you know, stuff like that. I, I really think it comes down to questions a lot of times. And then get back to, like, why, you know, soldiers fight. I mean, hell, soldiers join for causes. Soldiers fight for the brothers and sisters next to them. I mean, that's based on talking to over, you know, close to 200 veterans. I I, I feel pretty confident saying that. that. They will join for reasons and causes, but they fight for the one next to them. And yeah. That, and that... that's hard for adults to understand, let alone an 18-year-old. Um, so... Yeah, I, it's it's deep. I can tell you that, like, the one song that is one of my favorites right now is by, um, God, I think it's Willie T. It's about Chickamauga. And he talks about his two friends that he was fighting with at Chickamauga. And he was just fighting with them because they were still fighting. Yep. And it is such, every time I hear the song like tears well up in my eyes because it's so powerful and he talks about how like i was fighting because they were at my side yeah and And it's one of those songs that i think you know if you played for high school students they would understand what it was like a little bit more to be there Mm-hmm. fighting well i agree with you 100 i had two train of thoughts here um one one was going to take us to vietnam it's got to be like the ultimate you, you know for a soldier who you think you join for noble causes and then you start fighting a war and i think this happened to vietnam a lot and realize maybe i'm not for this cause but you're over there wanting to protect you know your brothers who are standing right there yeah. with you that, that that's got to be crazy um, and I, I wonder how, if that happened to a lot of, to any Confederate soldier, I'm sure it had to happen to somebody, but I would love to read those documents if they're out there. Well, and that second was, thing, well, that was real quick. That's very similar. That point was very similar to what I was thinking too. Like it, let's say, like, if you took the Vietnam war and the American revolution, right? Like, like I, the British soldiers had much different motivation, rank and file than the American rank and file did in the revolution. Like they're in their mind, the Americans are fighting for their own existence, for their own freedom, for a cause. The British are, I don't really know what the British felt like they're, you know, like it's very difficult. And and maybe this is all myth too, but you know, and kind of how we're kind of indoctrinated to think, but I mean, I, I, I have to imagine that they're fighting for that ideal and the British are fighting out of a sense of duty and honor, and then also to protect the person next to them. Changes in combat, obviously, I think have a lot to do with that, too. But then if you look at Vietnam, it's like the shoe's on the other foot, right? The the Viet Cong are fighting for 
and their existence, their in my, their eyes freedom for their very nation. And who and who are the Americans? You know, who are we fighting? You know, who are those fighting people fighting for? And that's where they were probably saying, like, I, I don't know, I you know, to make sure that we get out of here in, in many cases. But then in the Civil War is in the middle of that, where you have potentially both sides really, truly feeling like they're fighting for their own existence. They're fighting for the definition of what it is to be the United States or to be what they looked at as their country in the Confederacy. So like, I think that's a unique, Civil Wars and the Civil War are unique in that aspect. Both sides mm-hmm. really have that motivation um, because I think throughout history you see those the freedom movements are often outnumbered, offer, often overwhelmed, but they overcome that. Not every time, but many, many times they overcome that. So I think that that's an interesting piece of it, too. Like, yes, you're fighting for the person next to you, but how did the Americans overcome overwhelming odds against the British? How did the United States get defeated or, you know, not defeated? However you want to determine, define or label what happened to Vietnam, but it's a communist country now, so (laughs) it wasn't a victory, right? How do you define, you know, how did that happen? And then... you bring up a great point with they both felt they were fighting for this noble cause and they mm-hmm. continued to believe that a lot of them and probably the majority of them did throughout. That's probably why you get such the crazy numbers and death tolls and guys willing, uh, you know, or the country to continue to be willing to go is because, you know, the cause is probably part of the reason why the Civil War is so bloody and so drawn out because they both felt that it was they were fighting for their existence mm-hmm. for a lot of them. I, I agree. That I'm reading um, Blaze of Glory right now by Jeff Shirah, and it's historical fiction, but I'm still reading it from, you're reading it from Confederate and you're reading it from Union perspective. And you learn why they're both fighting. And when I read it from Confederate, it is, it's hard for me to read. They keep talking about this noble cause and... No, he does a nice job. He does. He does. It, it, and honestly, when I read it, and I had listened to the audiobook of Blaze of Glory before I read it, it plays out like a movie in my head. So, of course, like when Sherman's chapters are being read to me, I'm like, ooh, it's like a chapter about Sherman, you know, but, but still, like, I, I learned a lot from it and I enjoyed the audiobook so much that I'm reading it now. And, the Confederate cause is there, and so is the Union. And yeah, it, it's trying to, I guess, I don't know, like, it, like hear, like reading about it, hearing about it. it it's it's hard to read about it and hear about it too. Yeah, I think a, a good comparison to that that kind of line of thinking is to look at Germany as a nation now, right? Yeah. Like, like they're they're one. Well, I guess now probably two, two to three generations removed from World War Two, but like you could go back to the nineteen sixties, and their identity as a nation wasn't clinging on to like this lost mm-hmm. cause yeah. idea. You know what I mean? Like it's just not there now. There are very strong and i think oftentimes people don't really realize how strong the there's there's some fascist believers still and there's some plenty of white supremacists and all that stuff like it is 
you know, it's not as if that's, that's like completely gone and it just took a generation to wipe that out, but nobody clings to that. No, like no, there's no real bona fide, credible group of people who are potentially trying to run things who are holding on to this as like, this is who we are as a people. This is how we identify. And I don't think there was really a whole lot of that around the same time. And I think this is where the Confederate flag debate comes in. I think that was probably dying similarly in the Civil War. Mm -hmm. And it was brought back, you know, much later. Like the Confederate flag history, that wasn't even a thing in the 1880s or the 1890s. That came back in the 20th century and came back very strongly. Um, So a lot of this misunderstanding about the lost cause and all that is... And, you, and Nick, I was thinking about this when you were talking about primary sources. You can use primary sources from the 1920s when they really started to bring these ideas back, because you know you don't have to go back to 1867 to think like what you know what were some of the immediate scars of the Civil War, um, because I think the immediate aftermath was probably similar to World War II in many ways in Germany. Those nascent forces, those you know, their forces were nascent and just kind of there, and then. They were given some power with Jim Crow and other and other things mm-hmm. when when the punishment kind of phase of Reconstruction kind of kind of wore down and went out. So um, so yeah, that idea of the lost cause it's different now. I think it's different now than the people who actually even fought it and they did they made all the sacrifice. Yeah, you know, and, I, go ahead, Mary. No, I was gonna say like reading um, like Jeff Shiraz books, it. it in a way, when you're reading the Confederate standpoints, it seems like they're glorifying it. But I've had to tell my friends who are reading it that you're reading it from Confederate standpoint. So that's how they would have seen it. That's not necessarily how the author views it. Because when you read the author's chapters on Sherman, they're very much pro-union. So his books are like, putting you in the Confederate mind and the Union mind. Which makes them compelling, I think. Yeah, that that's why they are such good books to read. And I mean, I've read many of Jeff Shiraz's books and they do put you in that kind of, okay, this is how they were thinking. This is how the Union were thinking. But I still come out of it, you know, clearly union in my standpoint but it's interesting to see the other side and how they would have may have shouldn't say would have been may have been thinking at that time so i was just thinking here um you know the civil war why was the civil war fought what was the objective well one was to keep the union together Mm -hmm. you know that's one of the objectives for sure and that was done and then another objective for many was, you know, freedom and get rid of the institution of slavery. When was the Civil War won then? It's, it's it, still going. That's the thing. When was it won? That's the thing. <laughs> I mean, even with the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment, I mean, they find ways to, you know what I mean? They still have sharecropping was basically just a different form of slavery, um, you know, and that's another complex thing about that. I mean, are we still waging the civil war today in America? From Well, real quick, very we talked about Ken Burns earlier. 
a very, very important line from that documentary that has stuck with me and still does. Um, Dr. Barbara Fields, um, who is, she's not in that documentary a lot, but she's in it a lot in the first episode and she's in a lot in the last episode. Um, but she was the one who said the Civil War is not was, it's is. She says the Civil War is still going on, but she also says in that documentary and many times since that the Civil War can still be lost. And I think that that's a very, very important point, that we're still fighting it, perhaps we're still winning it, but it can still be lost. And, you know, I think that there are definitely times where it feels like we've won some battles and we're starting to lose some battles, it feels like. Yeah, and I think that's what makes it unique, too. I mean, you know, you kind of have World War II in a sense had, had an end. You know, World War One, a lot of the wars that we've been in, I mean, I guess the Korean War, maybe we could throw in there as a war that's continuous ongoing. I mean, technically it is. Um, so, but... <laughs> yeah. I mean, the arms is just a timeout, right? Like yeah, the world's longest timeout. <laughs> yeah. <for> the record. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely, I, I think that's why we're able to have 53 episodes of Abraham Lincoln is because the Civil War is still such a topic that's up there because of the, you know, I, I believe that quote. I, I agree with that quote. I, I agree with it too. And I've been asked that recently, actually, by my mother. She was like, do you really think the Civil War is going on still? And I said, yes, I do. And I said it was it was settled in two different, you know, peace treaties, maybe, but it's still being waged to this day. Right. And I think that a, a big piece of understanding that is to getting past, and this is something that I think I tried to do when I was teaching the Civil War, is the first among the first things that I want students to understand is do not think of this war in terms of North and South is mm-hmm. think of it in terms of the United States against the Confederate States yeah. or against people who were rebelling. Um, it happened to be regional, but um, I, I don't think that that's don't focus on North and South. And I try as hard as I can not to call the Confederacy yeah. the South. And I try as hard as I can not to call the union, the North. I screw it mm-hmm. up all the time. Um, but I think that's a, that's an important, a very important first step to understanding what the war was about. It, if, I, you, if you look at it as North versus South, I don't think you're really getting it. No, I agree too. And when I'm explaining it to Canadians, I say, I'm like, there's the North and there's Confederacy. Right. And what that, what that actually means. Yeah. And I have to explain, they're like, no, it's North and South. And I say, no, it's North and Confederacy. There is... A difference right yeah that's like you know i mean it's not even close to the same thing but like yeah you know if you were looking at like um and forgive me for not knowing canadian politics but like no, it's okay. like people in quebec who like want to you know have their own country or whatever and speak french like to say like oh that's quebec. a regional yeah yeah that's like a okay. regional thing right like it's it's only people that live on in this part like well yeah. it is but that's not it's not geographic it's cultural no, and it's beliefs it, like Exactly. It's and I mean, our episode about habeas corpus is going to get into that because I'm going to hopefully talk a little bit about that. Um, but yeah, we have that here in Canada too, where we have our we have our differences. We've had our own secession crisis here too. Right. Obviously, on a different scale and for different reasons, we're not exactly. comparing like yeah. speaking French to yeah. you know enslaving humans. Like, obviously, that's not the same thing. But, like, 
to say that, that that is geographic, like, yeah, the people on one side live together and they want it, but like, it's not geographic. It's about beliefs and ideas. Exactly. Um, so very similar to the civil war. So, Mm -hmm. um, I'd be very interested to hear some of our listeners thoughts on this. Like, how do you talk to your kids about the civil war? Um, at what age, like, you know, and I'm not saying that my son needs to be, and my daughter needs to be a scholar when they're going into third grade, but, um, to get a working knowledge of American history without falling into the pitfalls that I think many of us probably fell into. And I certainly did just as, just as being a product of American public schools, where there's this idea of American exceptionalism and everything, you know, um, is kind of treated a little bit more positively than reality. And then you kind of have to relearn all that stuff and you really relearn just what that war was about. Um, good and bad. Um, so yeah, I think that that's important. So we'd love to hear your yeah. thoughts on that, Nick. I mean, the American exceptionalism. I, th- I think we have a big problem in our American culture of looking at flaws and looking at failures, um, and just wanting to cover that up. I mean, it's flaws that make an individual. You know, um, when I, when I go away, you know, I'm sure when I'm in Montana, I don't see Kira for a week. I'll be thinking about everything that makes her great. Or like you hear this a lot of times too, when like somebody passes away, it's like the, not the flaws, but like, you know, like my grandma passed away a while ago, you know, like, oh man, you know, I kind of miss when she would, you know, yell at me or something. Like you remember those moments because that's what makes them, you know, without flaws and you just got like this just generic stuff, you know, and failures is how you learn. And then the fact that we as a society in America and as a culture don't look at that stuff and don't embrace that stuff is one of the biggest flaws that we have is one of the reasons why we're in the what i like to say the best that we're in now another thing i want to bring up the advantage you will have uh with your you know jeremy with your um, son being seven years old is they'll drive the conversation a lot because i find little kids are naturally curious you're going to be at those places that's going to lead to questions you know you have great interaction with them so um, as opposed to when you get in a high school setting, it's like all that curiosity goes away. Like kids don't want to ask any questions. It's kind of frustrating. So then where I got it, where you got to drive the conversation there. So the advantage when they're younger is you, you just have to figure out how much do you give them in that answer so they can understand it. And right. I, I agree with that. Get them when they're young, Jeremy. And I've got <laughs> three books for your kids. You might already have them. <laughs> Um, the first is, uh, who was Abraham Lincoln by Janet P. Pascal. Oh yeah. I know that one. I don't think I have it though. Yeah. That's a whole series. Yeah. There's a, there's a, yeah, I got a series of those. I've got that one. Um, I am Abraham Lincoln by Brad Meltzer. Yep. I have that one. That's a good one. Yeah. And then mad, the magic tree house, number 47, Abe Lincoln, at last we have that one as well yeah and i've got a story about this one mm-hmm. uh back when i worked retail at a bookstore um there was a, a girl she was about eight years old she came in and she wanted magic tree house books so i showed her where they were let her pick them out and her mother and her came up to the counter to pay for them and she's like i don't know why she's getting this one but a blinken like she's canadian <laughs> And I looked at the little girl, I'm like, do you like him? Do you know who he was? And she's like, no, but he looks cool. And I was like, that's the exact same thing I said when I saw him for the first time. And I looked at her mom, I'm like, you need to buy her this book. And she, her mom was like, okay. 
and the rest is history. The rest is history. I hope she continues to learn about him. The the rail splitter of the next generation. She'll she'll yeah. host the spinoff show in many years <laughs> from now. So, um, so yeah, we'd love to hear your thoughts uh, on this. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. Obviously, as all conversations about education go in history, uh, they're ongoing and there's not a lot of closure to them as we try to figure out just how it is to, to best uh, educate the next generation. And um, we are screwing it up all the time, but hopefully we're doing a good job as well, um, we in the education field. Um, so if you would like to contribute to this conversation, we'd love to kind of hear what you have to say. Uh, join the Facebook group. People are joining all the time. I think we're we're up over 100 members, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, join the Facebook group and put some comments on where we post the show. You can follow us at RailsplitterPod on Twitter and Instagram as well. And you could always email us at therailsplitterpodcast at gmail.com. Um, so thank you all for tuning in. We do have our two weekly features, and we are so excited. We added a new weekly feature last week. And I was so excited about it that we forgot to do our other weekly feature, um, which we've had. So let's do that one first so I don't get too excited and forget it again. This week in Lincoln, which we uh, have done every episode except for one, uh, where we bring in an example of Abraham Lincoln showing up outside of the context that we normally find him in in history books and documentaries and whatnot. Uh, Mary, you had posted a t-shirt not long ago of a mashup of two great American heroes that I thought was brilliant. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? (laughs) Um, so it was a, God, I'm trying to remember what it was now. (laughs) It was the world's greatest detective and the world's greatest leader in Abraham Lincoln. Yes. Yep. And I ordered that off, uh, $6 t-shirts. Oh, nice. By the way, if you don't know who the, well, just describe what's what's the t-shirt, Mary? I'm drawing a blank. Okay, so, Ooh, I'm, so I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna pull up the clip. Mary is so awesome and has so many awesome history t-shirts that she doesn't even keep them all straight. <laughs> I don't remember. Uh, she uh, tweeted a picture of Abraham Lincoln as if he were Batman, and it was yes, the, coolest, it. Like, the coolest. The Cape Emancipator. The Cape Emancipator. I didn't even know I had that yeah, on it. That's even better. The Cape Emancipator, and I saw it on six dollars t-shirts, and I ordered myself one of them. So the cape to man that the tagline makes it even better. I just saw the yep. the uh, image of Abraham Lincoln as Batman, but the caped emancipator, yep. a play on obviously the caped crusader. So um, very 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 cool. Um, so yeah, that is um, this week in Lincoln, and then of course we do have our weekly feature uh, of the people by the people, in which each of us talk about our favorite social media post of the mm-hmm. week or leading up to the show. Um, so Mary or Nick, who would like to supply their of the people by the people first? I could go. All right, go ahead. I don't know why I do this. Well, I guess I follow two um, two jabronis uh, online, <laughs> President Trump and President Fillmore. Um, but President Fillmore, somebody tweeted at him. Mill, uh, Miller, you should be so elated. Many think you are among the worst, if not the worst, of all our country's presidents. Not anymore. Western New Yorkers are so happy they'll be flocking to Forest Lawn Cemetery in Buffalo to place flowers of appreciation on your grave. So, um, and then, of course, Miller replied, something lame. Most historians <laughs> only have me as a worst seventh or eighth, such a loser. Uh, but anyways, 
That is only my first Fillmore tweet I've used so far in the show. So I think I'm banned from doing that for another month. Yeah, it so. is the yeah, second time we've done this feature. <laughs> and yeah, this first one that you've done that. So Miller Fillmore has made it into the show. All right. And Mary, what do we got? Okay. First of all, anything Justin Trudeau has said recently <laughs> takes it on the show. I agree. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, Eric Lee on the Real Splitter Facebook page posted a pen that they are selling in the Presidential Library Museum gift shop. Cool. That so, is, okay, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, that's awesome to me. Yeah, and what's on the pen? Abraham Lincoln. That is pretty cool. So Abraham Lincoln pen. It is summertime. I very strongly suggest that uh, you get to Springfield if you are at all able to. Um and uh, the gift shops got all kinds of cool knickknacks, not to mention the entire city of Springfield, so it's worth checking out. Uh, my submission for of the people by the people, this uh, feature is not intended for us to kind of pat ourselves on the back, but I, I do want to just point out a tweet from one of the rail splitters. Mary had posted uh, that she did the Relay for Life recently. Um, we didn't get a chance to talk about it on the show, so I wanted to give you props for that. Thank you. Um, that's an awesome thing that you did. Um, Thank you. And it was for for cancer stuff. And, and Jeremy, who you talk about on the show. Um, yeah, my partner like is, he um, is officially five years cancer-free. Well, I'll, I'll drink to Thank that. You. Congratulations, Jeremy, <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, Mary, for uh, for your support of that journey and for continuing to support others through the Relay of Life. So excellent Thank work you. doing that and supporting the good cause. So, um, like I said, we're not going to always put our own tweets in this, but I thought that was definitely Thank worthy you. of mention uh, as something that came across. So keep Thank tweeting you. about Abraham Lincoln and doing good things in the world, and you will end up on. The second weekly feature of the People by the People on the Rail Splitter podcast. So uh, we met as a Rail Splitter team before we recorded this evening, and we have some good shows coming up for you in June. Uh, the next show that we'll be dropping next week will be on Abraham Lincoln's uh, kind of shaky relationship with habeas corpus and civil rights in that regard. Uh, habeas so, what? What is this habeas, habeas corpus? corpus. Uh, spoiler alert, I, 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 I feel like I want to make the title of that episode, Habeas Corpus Schmabius Schmorpus. So pay attention Sounds to like that a one. club song. <laughs> so that will be our next episode. And the one after that will be the much, much anticipated review slash reactions slash um, just getting ourselves through a viewing <laughs> of Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. So uh, that's that is on the horizon as well in two weeks. Why the so, hell are we doing this to ourselves? Uh, so hopefully we'll be recording uh, quite a lot of episodes coming up and then getting them out to you as soon as we can. So um, or getting them to you on Thursdays actually. So um, any parting thoughts, Mary or Nick, before we sign off for this week? No. Nope. Great job. Good work, awesome everyone. Episode. All right. Thank you. Thank you both for the conversation for helping talking me through how I'm going to address the Civil War as a parent slash educator now. Uh, so thank the both of you for Rail Splitter Mary and Rail Splitter Nick. I am Rail Splitter Jeremy, reminding you to continue to walk the world with Charity for All, with males toward none, and with Charity for All. <laughs> and we will see you next week.